0: Swept me off my feet. You erased my history. You took all of me and filled it up with you.
1: Hello. Your this voice. is Let's Talk About It. Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse. And I am Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices the Maine-based nonprofit group Breaking the Silence All Over Maine. Today's guest is Hannah. You pretty much feel like an alien, you know,
2: you feel like it's just happening to you, and it couldn't possibly be happening to the lady next door because they, they look a certain way, they look like they have their act together, you know. My ex came from a very stand-up family, his grandfather was the chief of police in our town for a long time, and... I don't. I didn't think anybody would have believed me if I made those claims, you know.
1: So, if we could go back to the beginning, how old were you when you met him?
2: Uh, we have known each other. We had known each other our whole lives, pretty much. Our parents went to high school together, and we went to grade school together. We were friends in high school. How old were you, and how old was he? Uh, so we were. I was thirty when I started. Dating him. What was he like as an adult? He he had a steady job. He was um, working the night shift, just stocking trucks and stuff. So he didn't have a whole lot going on. He was sober, which he had said he had had trouble with in the past, substance abuse. Um, But to my knowledge, he was sober, and that was kind of like his new pathway that he was on more adultish, sober pathway. I mean, he was very charming um, and knew how to like shower me with compliments and stuff. And for a long time, I I didn't reciprocate. I was not really interested in being anything more than his friend. Like what kind um, of compliments would he give you? Um, well, it would be these sort of sideways comments, like, uh, "You you you know how to love me like nobody else can. You understand me in ways that other people don't, or I don't know what I would do without you, but then it turned into slowly, I'll die without you. I'll actually try to commit suicide if you try to leave me. So don't try.
1: When you started to be romantic, did you think that he was a good boyfriend material?
2: Um, no, I think I kind of knew better, which is really what stinks. Like, I, I think I knew that I could do better. But I was just in this phase of my life where, you know, I was 30 and I knew I wanted to have a family and I had just... Gotten out of an eight year relationship. And so I think I was probably a little bit on the rebound. So I was at a vulnerable point in my life. I never had any intention of like marrying the guy. It wasn't like I was head over heels in love, but that was, I thought, a mutual understanding that we were old friends and we were dating and we were both in these weird phases in our lives where our friends groups were, you know, still drinking a ton and partying, or some of them had moved on and had kids and we were kind of in the middle. Maybe we weren't right for each other, but we were just keeping each other company. Um, That's how you saw it. Yeah. And I think he, it didn't matter if it was me or another female, whoever was going to come into his life at that point, he was going to figure out how to keep them there.
1: By the way, what was his reputation in high school? He was kind of a bad guy in high school.
2: Part of the the, the weightlifter crew that would, you know, they would get in fights a lot and, and stuff like that. He wasn't like a stellar student or anything. So, um, were you were you a good student? I was, yeah. I was top of my class. Um, so in high school, it would have been like not, you know. I, I I actually dated his cousin in high school, who was the complete polar opposite of him when we were like fifteen. Um, you never would have gotten together with him in high school. No, nope. no, nope, I knew better. And and so when we when we came when our paths crossed when we were thirty, I just I guess made the assumption that he had evolved and grown as I had in 15 plus years, you know, I've racked my brain trying to think what started that first big argument. And it it could have been something so, so minor and silly. I, I don't even know what, you know, there was no telling that would, what would set him off. He used to use the word a lot, like two months in when we would argue that would come out of his mouth. And that let me know that he was on another level. I've never had anybody Use that language towards me in my life. So what basically what happened was we were driving, um, driving along. I was driving and I was going about 60 miles an hour, and he kept saying it really quietly under his breath, just like whispering it. He was taking a sip from a drink from like Wendy's or something. You know, he was had it to his mouth and he had said it about 15 times, and I was getting really really at the end of my rope and I just reached my hand over and I meant to like hit his arm but I I tapped the bottom of the cup by accident and it spilled on him. He grabbed me by the hair and slammed my head off the window of the car as I was driving down the road so we were like a couple miles from home and I pulled over because I was so frazzled and um, some someone actually pulled over in a truck and said, hey, are you okay? It was the middle of the winter. It was snowing out and they I think they thought I had like a flat tire or something. And he was, you know, yeah, yeah, we're fine. You know, we're we're good. And so I didn't even really have a chance to say anything. And he lived out in the country. So when we got to his house, I pulled in and he went to get out of the car and I was going to leave. And he went and stood behind my car so I couldn't back up. So every time I tried to back up or go forward, he would go around so that I would literally have to run him over if I left. So I realized that I had to stay and that I was just going to plan to wait until he fell asleep and I was going to leave at that point. And um, he was, of course, as soon as we got in the house, so remorseful, crying, sobbing, the whole works. So I waited till he fell asleep and I went to leave and couldn't find my keys And he had taken them to work with him. He works the night shifts. I didn't want to tell my parents what had happened because that would be the only way to really get someone come pick me up. Why didn't you want to tell your parents? It was embarrassing. I'd never had anybody treat me like that before. I I did not even I didn't want a soul to know that that had happened. Um, And at that point, I think I felt like, wow, he's he's a lot more broken than I thought he was. And if I offer to help him through this and and help him see that he doesn't have to be this way, then I can change him. That's just what I want to do when I see somebody with a problem. So that happened after about three months. That was the first time. So I made plans to move to Boston. I lined up a job and I uh, managed to get down there for an interview without him getting in the way. Um, And I got the job and I hadn't told him. I was just trying to figure out how to get out safely without him following me or finding me and found out that I was three weeks pregnant about a week before I was going to leave. And at that point when, you know, we were sleeping together, it wasn't like forced. It wasn't rape or anything, but it was just something I was doing to keep him on, to not upset him.
1: How did he feel when you told him you were pregnant? He must've been happy about that. He was
2: over the moon, and yes, you know, so excited, and we're going to do this together, and I, I, it was the hardest, like, acting gig I've ever had to try to fake that I was also happy and excited, because it was kind of like a death sentence, you know, it was a commitment to life to have to be involved with this guy. On one hand, were you kind of excited about having a baby? Yeah, I've always been, I've always, I was the kind of kid who would, like, I would put, a crib out by the sidewalk when I was in kindergarten and put a sign that said free babysitting I loved babies from the time I was a baby and I went to school for yeah I got a bachelor's degree in child development and disability studies uh, and family relations and so I I really yeah I was excited to have a kid eventually in my life and I was 30 so I was you know kind of ready um so I guess I just figured if it didn't work out, I'd be fine on my own. I have supportive parents, and, and I knew that I could handle it if he ultimately took off. And, I, and deep down, I knew that that was what I wanted to have happen. And I also thought that I was protected for that nine months. There was no way that a person could put a hand on
1: a pregnant female. So well, you said he, he was he was physical with you, like every six weeks or so, he'd be physical with you? And tell me about one of the, one such incident.
2: One night he had come home from work after working the night shift and I was getting up, getting ready to go to my day shift. So that's really how I managed it was that we were working opposite shifts. And so I was only home with him for a couple hours in the morning and a couple hours at night, like an hour overlap around dinner time. Um, but he expected when he came home from work that I would have dinner waiting for him. He got home at like 6 a.m., so I'm working a day job, but I was always up trying to, like, make sure there was something for him to eat when he came home. Yeah, it was outrageous. Um, but it was easier to make sure that there was something to eat than it was to have him be explosive. So over time, I just started doing those things as a way of staying safe. You know, it was like a just managing his mood became a full-time job. And he had come home, and he had, he had he was – Mad when he got home because there wasn't something to eat, I think is what set him off. And he went to sleep and I thought I was good. I was getting ready to go to work and I think I dropped something that woke him up. Like I I dropped my bag or something like that. And at that point, I was a good six months pregnant. So I had a big, big belly and he flew up out of the bed, out of a sound sleep and just got me with one punch right in my right in my side of my head, knocked me out cold and I woke up on the floor like trying to figure out what had happened because I didn't remember how I had gotten there. And, and it started coming back to me. And I was like, holy crap. So my son was born and he had to be in the hospital for like six or seven days. He had uh pneumonia when he was born, which was very random. It was a pretty healthy pregnancy. Um, so we were there for about a week and somehow before I left that hospital, I had to figure out what a plan Um, And he one day asked me to hold the baby like the day before we left the hospital. And I wouldn't hand the baby over because I just felt like he was in a really irritable mood. And I didn't know that he wasn't going to just snap snap out and shake the baby if if I said something that f***ed him up. And he basically had backed me up across the room and pushed me up against a wall. I was holding the baby and he had me up against a wall and was demanding that I hand the baby over. And the custodian walked in. And clearly she knew she had walked in on on a bad situation and she alerted the social worker at the hospital.
1: That's a good thing she did that, right?
2: Yeah. She came and talked to me and and basically let me know, like, some people are concerned about you and do you have a safe place to go? Uh, And I said, yeah, yeah, my parents are supportive. If I have to go to their house, I can go to their house. Um, What we didn't talk about was how I would actually do that and, and get there and leave, Uh, because every night at this point when he would go to work, he would take my keys. And one night he even, uh, what did he do? He hid the car seat. So he left my keys and made me, it was after a big argument, he left my keys, made me think that I could leave, but he knew I wouldn't leave without my baby in a car seat. He was only three weeks old at that point. Um, So when he was four weeks old, this is like probably the worst that it ever got. Um, We, he came home from, work and it was early in the morning. And, um, I don't even know what set off the argument, but it winded, winded up with him basically following me from room to room as I held the baby, just telling him to leave me alone, get away from me. Like, please just give me space. The baby's crying. I need to feed him. I've got to change his diaper. He had chased me from room to room and he had picked up a a broom like a metal broom with a metal handle and he held it like this over my head and I had the baby in my arms and I had enough time to look at him in the eye and just like beg him basically you're not gonna do that you're not gonna attack me with a metal broom while I'm holding a baby who has a soft spot on his head so I just put my arm over my son's head and he broke that broom in three pieces over my head. And I have a big scar on my head on the back um, where I, you know, I turned to the left, but had I turned to the right, my son would have gotten it. And so that, that let me know that not only was he not afraid to, if I was seriously injured, that he wasn't even afraid about hurting his own four week old baby. So, Um, I scrambled around trying to find my cell phone to call the police and he knew that's what I was doing and there were like cereal bowls flying at my head and um, at that point he had never tried to strangle me before and um, it, it ended with me I had to put my son down in his little monkey seat his old baby rocker because I was afraid that if I didn't put him down he would get hurt and he started choking me and I started basically saying goodbye to my son because I thought that was it and I said to him you know you're gonna kill me I can't I can't breathe I can't things are going black I'm seeing stars and he said that's the point but then he was that's attempted murder right there yeah
1: that's attempted murder It was really
2: scary. Yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, I just hope he was charged with attempted murder. We'll hear that, but I just hope he was. Yeah.
2: He, so at that point, um, I can't remember. He let go and he went and laid down and went to sleep. And that was always the weirdest thing to me that he could do stuff like this, like knock me out cold or attempt to basically kill me and then just lay down and go to bed. Like no problem. Um, and so at that point, I knew that we were going to die if we stayed. Um, and so at that point, I called my mom. I went to leave, and he had taken the car seat with him. And it was the middle of February at that point. My son was born in the first week in January. So, yeah, it was the middle of February. Um, and I asked her to come pick us up in the middle of the night. And I knew that I was going to have to confess to her that something had happened um, and, and so I told her that, you know, well, he, we got in an argument and I was holding the baby and he threw a cereal bowl at my head because even then I was still protecting him. I didn't want everybody to know that I was dating this monster. And he had just tried to kill me and I was still trying to protect him in front of my family, you know. So she came and got us and we went to her house. And at that point she called a lawyer and she was like, what do we need to do? This is a serious situation. And so the next day I met with a lawyer you know, I'm sure he came home and I wasn't there. And he immediately started calling all of our friends, you know, going on Facebook and, and, and she took off with my kid and she's kidnapping my kid. And, um, people I didn't even know were calling my phone, telling me to bring my, bring his kid back home and stuff. It was just disgusting. Um, and my attorney basically was like, you need to cut off all communication right now you don't answer his calls, you know, we we're going to tell the police what's going on. And so we got a protection order and he, my attorney, much to my, you know, I didn't think I needed to go talk to anybody, but he wanted me to go talk to the, to Karen. Um, she was a, uh, the person from the family violence project up in uh, Augusta area and or Waterville area. She, she basically just um, has did what what you have done. Just listen to me. I She's like, tell me everything that has ever happened. I want you to tell me every time he's ever put his hands on you, I'm going to get it all down on paper. This is evidence. We need your story because you're going to need it in court and, and um, to support yourself. So I told her everything. And as I started to tell her, I heard myself saying it out loud for the first time. And I couldn't believe that I had gone through that. I, I just how did I not recognize that this was not normal and that this was actually domestic violence, it was abuse? And then she had me read a couple of chapters of Lundy Bancroft's book. Um, Why does he do that? And I just remember the chills going right up my spine because it was like I was reading a story about about him. He ultimately was charged with domestic violence, and it was his third offense because at that point I found out that he had two priors with two different females. I did not know that, so it was a felony.
1: There have any jail time for the, either of those times I
2: think he had gone in like overnight one of them was in florida and the other one was up here in new england and and, and were there photos of your the strength of your neck did were there photos of your injuries i took a photo and gave it to my attorney but there was never a charge for strangulation and i only learned down the line that there was a separate charge that they could have charged him with strangulation Did you tell the police that,
1: that that he cut off your air supply yeah and they then they never charged him with strangulation nope they just
2: got him on domestic violence. Um, assault. We got the protection order and he violated it on regular occasion by showing up here and there, calling my phone. I started a job working as an ed tech at the elementary school uh, when my son was about six months old. So flash forward two months from the time that he had tried to strangle me and and we left, um, two or three months. He I went in to drop my son off for his first day of daycare and it was my first day of work and the daycare was attached to the elementary school. So I dropped him off. I went back out to my car and I heard, an. I got in my car to move it to the other end of the parking lot and I heard a knock on the window and he had his hood drawn over his face so that only his eyes were showing and he jumped in the car before I had time to lock it. And he was demanding a hug and the school resource officer came and said, listen, I know that you don't want to hear this, but we need to call this in we're going to go hunt him down. And I was like begging the resource officer to just leave him alone because it's just going to make him mad. And unless you can guarantee that he's going to get locked up for a long time, this is just going to make things work worse for us. My hands were kind of tied and it wasn't a choice anymore. Um, and so I kind of at that point realized that I was going to have to partner with the criminal justice system. If I wanted to get through it safely, I couldn't like fight it. I couldn't manage it on my own anymore. I couldn't like drive around town and be looking over my shoulder everywhere I went and that it would be, it started to sink in that it would be better to have them on board. And, see what kind of help that, you know, protection they could offer. So they put the the whole school on lockdown and it was still, this was my first day of work and his first day of school. And there are about 300 kids there. Then my cell phone was ringing and it was the Educare Center calling to tell me that they had moved my son to a secure location out of his classroom because there were windows and a a door to the, and that was the, the, that just made me like physically sick to think that they were moving him in case somebody, in case Ryan was going to come back and, and, shoot up to school. So they found him in the woods. And after about like, I don't know, an hour or so, I can't remember, we were let off lockdown and the day just moved on as normal. Um, And then I had to, I think what ended up happening as a result of that was that um, he was sentenced to 30 days at that point. So he went in for 30 days and I was like, you know, some breathing room. But that helped you that 30 days, didn't it? What did it do? It did. for you? So it gave me a little bit of time to really think about whether or not we were going to be able to exist in the same space as him in the same state, same town. And I realized pretty quickly that I had to make a plan. I couldn't. He was just going to terrorize me until either it resulted in death or him being locked up for a really long time. And our justice system wasn't locking him up for a really long time they were doing first it was 24 hours then it was 48 hours then it was now it's 30 days but he's got a school on lockdown and he's tried to strangle me numerous times and this is this is the slap on the hand and he had to do the batterers intervention again which um you know I could go on about that and how ineffective and actually emboldening that is for for a lot of abusers he just learned how to you know how to act the role of a rehabbed abuser you know and he learned how to blame it on his substance abuse apparently which which was all of a sudden a new issue that every time he had laid his hands on me he had been stone cold sober I remember going to court um and it this was while he was in jail for his 30-day for the PFA violation he filed a, a a motion to bring me back to court for parental rights to seek visitation for the baby who whom there was a pfa in place for because the pfa was for me and on behalf of my son he didn't win that did he yeah they they gave him monthly uh super supervised visitation at a center in waterville they made the point that Parental rights are not tied to domestic violence in any way unless there's a serious threat. And I was like, well, he broke a brew, a metal broom over my head and broke a cereal bowl over my head while I had my four-week hold in my arms. that That's just one of the many times that he's jeopardized my son's life. What did he say about that? He admitted to it in jail because I read my... I had submitted my statement and my story in order to get the PFA, and they asked him, is, is everything in this statement true and... and did these events happen? And he said, yeah. So he got, he was in for 30 days when he got out. Um, it was kind of quiet for a little bit. And that was probably, that was pretty eerie when things are quiet and you know, he's out of jail. That's the scariest time. And we finally got a chance to go back and get our stuff. And it was really interesting. My dad started walking up the stairs and he had Caleb, I mean, maddox in his arms. Um, and every time my dad started walking up the stairs to the apartment, my son would freak out and cry scream it was something about going back to that place and he was only at this point he was like three months old or something we lived in China at the end of a dead-end road that's about four miles long I was changing my baby on the diaper table and I got a call from his dad and it said listen Ryan uh, was in a rehab program he got released and he immediately tried to he tried to contact me a billion times and I didn't answer the phone which led him to Text messages saying he was going to kill himself because that was always his backup thing. Like if I did, it was always a suicide move was the last card he would draw. So this time he had gone as far as swallowing a bottle of pills, putting himself in the ER. And his dad said, so yeah, he got out of rehab. He swallowed a bottle of pills. Somebody somehow got him to the hospital and the hospital had to release him when he was done. So he's out and we have every reason to believe that he's heading to your house.
1: You are listening to the WERU radio program, Let's Talk About It. And I am Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine based nonprofit group, Finding Our Voices, which can be found online at findingourvoices.net. Now let's return to my conversation with Hannah. I think the phone just dropped right out of my
2: hands. I was in the middle of changing Maddox's diaper and I picked him up without a diaper on and ran to the front door to lock it and he was standing right there and he had one foot in the door and it was like just probably the scariest moment of my life and it basically... It was like a pursuit through the house where he was trying to just get a hug. I just want a hug. I'm just, I just tried to kill myself and I don't, I'd, all I need is, you know, the victim, the crying, just hold me. I just, and I, I was backing up and backing up through each room of the house. He was coming forward and I was walking backwards and I was holding the baby. Then he started getting that I wouldn't give him a hug. He grabbed my cell phone out of my back pocket. He He was flipping over chairs to get to me faster. He flipped over the pack and play. And so we were running through the house at this point and I ran into the home office, which is the only place I knew that had a landline because he had grabbed my cell phone and he got me right as I grabbed the landline, he grabbed my wrist and he was like, you're not doing what I think you're going to do. And I was like, no, no, I was caught red handed, you know, calling the cops on your abuser is like, that's what will get you killed. Mm -hmm. And at that point I thought that we were pretty much done. Was, he kind of like turned his body a little bit and he reached out his arms to hold Maddox. And I just flew past him and slammed the door and locked it. Then I got us in the bathroom and we were locked in the bathroom. And so we were safe for a minute, you know, for, for then. And he started banging on the doors.
1: You, you, you said
2: you weren't gonna. You said there was no lock on that door. And he was banging so hard that all the pictures had fallen down off the, there are off the walls and the phone? shattered. Did you have your phone? No. So I'm stuck in the bathroom without a phone. And, and I had, at least I had the baby with me, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And after like an hour and a half and I'm in there just singing lullabies to to Maddox, trying to get him to just not cry. And I'm nursing him nonstop, just doing anything to like, you know, is if he started crying, I knew it would just irritate Ryan more. And so he had stopped banging on the walls, and there was glass shattered all around us because he was—he was, he was really—I can't believe that he didn't break the door down, but he wasn't able to get through. And at a certain point, he became quiet, and he was like, "I'm going," he's like, "I'm sorry," I want you to come out. He turned into the remorseful at adi- uh, the remorseful victim routine, which is was so common; it was so predictable for him. He would have these violent outbursts, and then when that didn't work. He would turn into the victim and say he was sorry and ask for a hug and all he needed was my love and it would never happen again. I'd heard it so many times that I was like, whatever, I just, there was no way I was coming out of that bathroom until he was gone. I didn't care if I had to wait him out for three days, but I was never coming out of that bathroom. And he said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go outside and smoke a cigarette. So he said, I put your cell phone on the floor by the door and I could hear him walk down the hall and I heard the door open and shut. But I thought it might be a trick. So I waited a little bit longer. And I could really hear. I thought he was outside. So I and I just took the chance. The only chance I had really. So I opened the door, grabbed my phone, shut the door, locked it. And he really was outside smoking a cigarette. What he thought he had done. I found out later, I found it in the driveway, if it makes emergency phone calls without a SIM card. So he took off in his car, heading to wherever he was going. They got him on my road, like a mile from my house. And so they charged him with, this was the felony domestic violence charge.
1: This was the third time.
2: Yeah, so it wasn't well, the
1: was felony visa was a third time. Yeah. yeah. And it was also a violation of the protection of abuse order, no? Right. Yeah, and he got charged with that as well. Tell me about what you thought he would get. What kind of sentence do you think he would do for again for another another, oh, another episode?
2: I figured he would go away for a year at least. Ultimately, he thought I didn't have my SIM card in there. He could have held me there for as long as he wanted. How about three counts and you're out with domestic violence? Yeah. And I didn't know any of the, the laws or the rules at that time. Um, but I just assumed that by that point, the, the criminal justice system would take care of it.
1: Okay, but tell me the process of the district attorney, did you tell them that you were going to cooperate? Yeah. Did you think there was going to be a trial?
2: Yeah, I thought at some point I would have a chance to tell tell my story and tell what had happened. Ultimately, at court that day, they had us in separate rooms, and they had a person going back and forth between the rooms so that I wouldn't have to be in the same room as him. And it was like, listen, this is what they're proposing six months in or six with six months probation or a year and he chose the six months but before they gave him those options that's when the DA had come the assistant DA at the time had come to me and said right as we were going to the courtroom you know it's his third offense and it should be a felony but we would like to proceed with it as a as a misdemeanor her her reasoning I I don't really know why but she said you know in terms of me it would probably help me because he would never be able to get a job if he was a felon, which meant I would never get any child support. And I told her I didn't care about that. I, w- I didn't want anything to do with him. I certainly didn't want them hunting him down for money because that would just make him more mad at me. I never would have planned to, you know, seek child support. And she said, okay, well, if he does get charged with a felony, he's going to do some, you know, a longer sentence. And ultimately you have to decide whether or not that is in your best interest. You know, we can have the same effect on him by having him be on probation and do the batterers
1: intervention
2: with a shorter jail sentence as a batterers
1: intervention again for the third time.
2: Yeah, and the judge only gave him a refresher's course because he didn't think he needed to do the course the whole time again because he'd already done it. He was an expert at batterers intervention. <laughs> when you when Wait. you when you heard
1: that from the district district attorney, what was your reaction?
2: Well, when she when she said the part about the child support, I said that's ridiculous. Like. He needs to be charged with a felony. I just wanted him to go away. But as soon as she said, you know, ultimately for your safety and in the long term, if he knows that you extended this olive branch as like a, you know, I'm going to not push the felony and let it go as a misdemeanor, that's probably going to be safer for you in the long run. So just think about that. And then it was like, okay, your your case is called. And so I didn't even have a second to talk to my attorney about it. And they presented their case. And even my attorney didn't say he never encouraged me to, to stick with the felony charge. Like It was almost as if my own attorney was on board with giving him the, the easiest way out.
1: Did you get a chance to speak in court? And did you speak at the for the sentencing? Nope, they never asked
2: me to. I would hope that the judge at that point would have said to the assistant district attorney, why are we putting this through as a misdemeanor? Why would the judge not be in favor of giving this guy? At that point, he had violated the PFA like three different times, and they were pretty violent events. I thought it was going to be this really like emotional, drawn-out, like where I had to stand up and talk, but nobody ever asked me to say anything. I went to the, the support groups with the Family Violence Project, and I felt better by going there and sharing my story, so at least I knew that other people were feeling the way I felt, but I didn't think that the justice system... Had ever heard my story you know it
1: wasn't like i ever had had a chance to tell anybody what happened there were three times when this guy came up in front of the justice system and you never had a chance to have your voice heard in any well, of those three times nope it was always and, through my attorney
2: it was like tell my attorney what happened and then he would speak on my behalf and not and he wouldn't it wasn't even about what had happened he would just state what we were seeking for a an agreement or a punishment or whatever
1: it was never the, like saying what so happened. when flying <laughs> our voices was invited by megan maloney to present to the district attorneys and the victim advocates at their, I guess it was their annual conference. You feel that that was the first time that you- Yeah, I mean,
2: that was the first time that I felt like anybody who had the, has the ability and the is high enough up in the justice system to actually affect any change had heard my story. Because you can tell your support group all you want. You can tell the Family Violence Project all you want but it's not actually going to change anything for anybody else this was the first time that i felt like the the people who needed to hear the message heard the message
1: hannah don't you think that that's part of the problem with domestic violence in maine and that's part of why half of all friggin' homicides year after year are, are domestic abuse because yeah. the victims are never are not heard they she don't heard. know nobody in power hears our story right it's
2: outrageous and if somebody had heard i mean that's what i wonder about the whole school lockdown thing if Every parent in town should have known about that and heard about that and wondered about that, and it should have been in the news. It should there should have been a big deal made ab- about it, and it it was like the entire system was working to give him the least amount of punishment possible, even on his third offense, which should have been a felony. I think he ended up with the lightest sentence. It was never in the paper. It was ne- I never got a chance to speak in court. And don't you think that also serves to make you question? Well, was it that bad after all? Is it really serious? Is, or did I? Was it really partly my fault? Yeah. Um, and he, and so the whole time that he was in uh, jail, he would try to file court motions to bring me back to court for for access to his son. So after he got out, after he did rehab, visitation officially started once a month. And at that point, I knew that we were going to be
1: leaving. I just hadn't figured out where we were going wait, to go. Wait, I have to stop you here. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to throw up.
3: Mm-hmm. Why
1: did this individual get visitation?
2: No. I I thought that I was, I thought we were protected from that because we had a PFA in place on behalf of my son because he could have died on a couple of occasions, a couple of occasions. I th- I was so floored. My jaw hit the floor when they granted him. And my, my lawyer was like, well, it's supervised. It's supervised. So, so. Again, even
1: your lawyer yeah. was not on
2: your side. Like, so I should feel thankful that they're not giving him unsupervised time. How about the Family
1: Violence Project? Were they on your side as far as trying to yeah do something about this?
2: Yeah, they were. They, I mean, they, she was... Outraged, but there wasn't really much she could do she offered to come speak in court on that day but they never gave her the opportunity to speak she came to one of my I think she came to one of the um you know the hearings for his parental rights motion and he ended up what he did was he he would use the court system to to further harass me he would file motions uh, thats he, that's
1: I think legal abuse we'll call that
2: yeah. Yeah. They, he would file motions every like maybe two months or so, but he would never have any new information or any changes he had made or any relevant, there was no, no reason to have filed that motion. So after he did that, like three times, the judge finally said, you know what, from here on out, if you file a motion and she has to pay her attorney
1: to be here, you're going to pay 50% of her. Attorney. Why did it take three times?
2: I don't, I don't know. I guess I don't know. That's another, and
1: did he say 50% or he had to pay all your, all your expenses.
2: 50%. So in the end he ended up, he still has, I mean, he is, it's still on his record. And in, in addition to like $14,000 in child support that he owes, he owes um, $10,000 or something in attorneys. But he never community. even got it. No. He never I even got know. it. Well, yeah.
1: It's so just, you're out that money.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it financially debilitated me to the point where I had saved money so that we could leave the state and having to go back to court that many times, my parents helped me as much as they could, but ultimately it depleted all the savings that I had. So my hands were tied and I couldn't leave. So we were stuck and we had to participate in this visitation once a month. And I remember on the first visit, you know, I I, I was like, I would throw up. I was physically sick, just thinking about it all day. I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating. I was so nervous about having to leave him. And my son couldn't really talk. He was only, at this point, he was approaching about a year because the six months in jail had passed. So he was about a year old. And he he could say, when I dropped him off, he said, mommy, out, outdoor, no. Like he was everything he could to tell me that he didn't want to be there, scream and cry. And I had to hand him over to a stranger who I had never met. And I had asked them, can we come in and at least see the center and meet the person who's going to supervise the visit could come in the day before, just so he's familiar with where I'm leaving him. Because here's his mother who's never left him with anyone a day in his life except for his daycare. And I'm just handing him over and saying bye. And they didn't, they didn't, you know, they were like, you have to just, you have to leave them. You just have to drop him." Uh, it was care and comfort in Waterville. They had a different worker supervising each visit. So we did four total before we got to the point where we were able to leave the state. Every time I would pick him up, it was, he would be soaked in tears and just. Oh my God. All over his face, like shaking, convulsing, because he was so scared. And the, and because Ryan, he would hold him against his will. And he posted pictures on Facebook one day of him holding him in a rocking chair. And my son had his arms up like this and he was trying to like slink out, you know, slide out of
1: his grip. You left the state.
2: Yeah, so well, on, this is one last important detail about the visits. The last visit was supervised by somebody who we had gone to high school with, whom he had dated in high school. So I, when I found that out, I called my attorney and I said, this is, you know, her notes are not going to reflect what actually happens in that visit. They're not going to be objective. And that's not fair. I was said, I'm not doing these visits anymore. He said, if you don't do these visits, Hannah, you are going to be held in contempt of court. He, you have to do these visits. He said, then we need to find a different center. And he said, okay, we'll file a motion to do that, but it's going to take probably a month or two to even get into the court system. That meant like a couple more times. And I just wouldn't do it. I, I drew the line, Um, and all through this time, uh, my ex-boyfriend and I, like when Ryan and I had first met, it was when my ex-boyfriend and I had broken up. We dated for eight or so years, Um, and we went our separate ways, but it was a mutual breakup. We had always remained friends. We dated other people, and I think we both knew at some point it would be great to end up together again, so he had moved to Boston, and I had moved back up to Maine. We were both in North Carolina when we met. Uh, so we had always remained in touch and he had come up a couple of times on the weekend to meet Maddox because we were like best friends. His sister owned a house and she had an apartment for rent upstairs and we we took that. And so we moved down. What what, what city is this? Uh, this was in Saugus. So it's just north of Boston. Okay. Um, and I got a really good job and everything was great. Because we got out without, you know, the day I left town, I had to provide notification 30 days to the non-custodial parent that I was leaving town. And I remember having to bring that up with the court system about how how much that would jeopardize our safety for those 30 days. So we had to file a motion to get that waived, and they did waive it. Um, And they allowed me to notify him in writing. That we were permanently leaving the state, and that they allowed the letter to be delivered after I had left the day that I left.
1: They didn't tell them where you were, though. No,
2: nope. no. Nope. Um, and all my address and everything has been redacted in the court system. They're pretty good about that. But um, so I was at least happy that they did that. They recognized that there would be some danger. My attorney facilitated all that. But the kicker is that about maybe two months later, Guess who moved to Massachusetts, 20 miles away from where we were living? Are
1: you kidding me? I'm not even kidding you. And did you get in touch with the Massachusetts court system or legal system? I tried to
2: figure out what I needed to do to get a protection order in Massachusetts.
1: Could could you imagine, just because you're so familiar with the court, the way it worked, during COVID, with the the way the delays were Uh, when you were in it, how many more delays there would be and what that would mean for you? Yeah, I have not been able to stop thinking about that. Anything else that you feel is important uh, to, to to have in this radio episode that we haven't touched on?
2: Um, I think there's one there's one last thing. The two big things to me really are: a if there is a protection order in place for on behalf of a child, there there should be no question about giving that non custodial parent. Supervised or unsupervised, I don't care. Sh- they should not be exposing children to repeated trauma to their abusers because they've been abused too, their lives have been jeopardized, let alone what it does to the, to me, to the, the parent who, who has to dr- go drop them off. And it's just, it's not healthy. It's, if that's their end goal is to keep a healthy relationship with both parents, regardless of whether the parents are getting along, that is not in the best interest of the child and the parent and the non-custodial parents' relationship. Right? It can wait six months, it can wait a year until the non-custodial parent is in a better place or whatever, but it doesn't need to happen the day they get out of jail. And it was like they prioritized that. They were gonna fast track his visitation so he could have access to his son even with a protection order in place. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I was never told this in court by my attorney or anybody else that because my son was on, he was on main care and he was receiving child care subsidy because I was a single parent and um, couldn't, I couldn't take a job if I didn't have help with daycare. So because of that, the state had some money invested in, in this. So they, whether I gave my permission or not, they were going to seek child support for their reimbursement purposes. And once they were, once they were paid back the, you know, whatever, $2,000 in child care subsidy that, that they had paid out so far, they would start sending payments my way. So the state was going to collect their money first, and then payments would start coming to me. And I said, till I was blue in the face, that I didn't want a penny of his money. I did not want to file child support, a motion to collect child support. I was pretty much forced to go through that process anyway. They said, if you don't do it, the state's going to do it through the support enforcement office. And um, so either way, they're going to go after it go after the support. And I just figured he'll never have a job. He'll never willingly pay it anyway. They're going to have to garnish his wages. And I just won't take it. I'll I'll write a check and I'll send it right back to his father. Why, you know? why
1: were you so adamant about not not taking it?
2: I just knew that it would would forever tie me to him. Even though we have a child together, I thought maybe there was a chance he would move on after all of this and leave us alone, but not if he has to pay every week. No way, that would keep us current in his mind every time he looked at that pay stub. And so we've tried to seek termination of parental rights. Rob would like to adopt my son. He's been financially supporting him and he is who he knows as dad for the last seven years since he was old enough to talk, that has been his father. Uh, and we were told that we would have to ask Ryan's permission for Rob to adopt him as we would also if we wanted to change his last name. And so we did ask, we brought him to court and we asked and we were told no. There's a um, abandonment law in maine or or some type of clause that says if you go if a non-custodial parent goes five years with no contact with a child, it's technically parental abandonment, and that rights will be terminated against their will or can be. And so we waited and five years. And then we waited we waited an extra year just to be on the safe side. And we brought it back to court again and tried to get the automatic termination against his will and they said oh no he's been paying child support um he made he made like two payments that year (laughs) so him making one child support payment stopped the five-year clock and restarted it a child support payment counts as contact so he has not seen my son for seven years And we now have to wait another five years before we even seek the possibility from the courts of terminating his rights against his will, because the state pursued that child support and they're garnishing his wages.
1: You have been listening to my conversation with Hannah. If you have a question or comment for me, Patricia McLean, or my guest, Hannah, please email me at hello at findingourvoices.net. And you can learn more about our group, which is breaking the silence of domestic abuse, community by community, all over Maine, by visiting our website, findingourvoices.net. In October, 50 artists created and donated art in solidarity with survivors for a Finding Our Voices, downtown Rockland window art exhibit, opening everyone's eyes, minds, and hearts to the domestic abuse all around us. I invited three poets to participate, Dave Morrison, Elizabeth Tibbetts, and Kristen Lindquist. And their poems written out by calligraphers were to me a highlight of the exhibit. On this holiday show, I want to share their poems with you. First up is Dave Morrison, who is also a musician. So setting his poem, Patricia, Alone After 14 Years, to music
4: The little one is just plain scared. Her smallness dismays her in the face of big changes want to tell her little sugar lies until her new life isn't so new anymore. But the older one puts her fists on her skinny hips and defends him, and I feel so shocked and That I want to tell her every dull, numbing truth Like pounding in a long nail An act that may or may not be forgivable just for me I would because in almost every way she is me but when she's angry she is so so him
1: Our window banners, which are traveling the state, feature 29 main survivors and a quote from each of them. Kristen Lindquist composed haiku for our exhibit that referenced the quotes on the banners. Allison's, it was all a lie. Amber's, I thought I deserved to be hurt. And Becca's, he was a gentleman at
5: first. This is Kristen Lindquist in Camden, I'm going to read a set of nine haiku written for Finding Our Voices. Man in the moon, the silent witnesses to her shame. Harvest moon, she finds the voice to tell her story. The bruise of sunset, I believe what I see. On her face. Her scars in plain sight, craters of the moon. Only a shadow of her former self, dark side of the moon. Forked lightning, realizing it was all a lie. Slack-tied, she thought she deserved to be hurt. Thunder moon. He was a gentleman at first. Geese in flight. She resolves to love herself first. Thank you.
3: This is Elizabeth Tibbetts from Hope. I'm going to read my poem, Give, which I wrote for the Finding Our Voices project. Give Fast, but perhaps that's how it happens. You better be ready. Suddenly the right one appears, and you don't have to fret every second how you'll get by. So I send my heart, my little soldier, with her feather sword, out to meet his army of love. Hold my place, then give in. Whirl around the living room with my son and him. Move through the days flushed and certain, Relieved, believing for six weeks. Wishing is not enough. Waiting, wailing, stitching my lips together, shushing my son. Every day now, I let the man who adores me would do anything for me if down. I wake every day gutted by an icy spoon. Give and give and give. Until I don't know myself, until I reach the bottom and find it's false, then fall to another below, nobody knows I'm there. Until I'm not, and I tell, though it takes years. Meanwhile, until words find me and explain, I watch my boy dipping his spoon into a bowl of chowder, and I breathe in relief and the sharp scent of wood smoke biting back at frost. And here is another gift, the new single from
1: the musical duo Roan Yellowthorn. This group features Sean Strack on drums and my daughter Jackie writing the songs and singing. The song is called I'm Enough, and Jackie dedicates it to anyone who is healing from parental domestic violence, narcissistic abuse, and emotional abuse. Slide The two words most associated with Christmas are joy and peace. But for many people trapped with an angry and controlling family member, as I was for 29 years, there is even less peace and joy than usual on this holiday and on every holiday. If you know someone you suspect is in an unsafe home, please check in with them regularly. If you are in an unsafe home, Make this the year that you reach out for the help that is there as a lifelong gift to you and your children. Call someone you trust or call a domestic abuse agency. The national hotline number is 1-800-799-7233. Take it from me and the 40 plus women who were in it and got out. Peace and safety and joy are possible. That is what I wish for all of you. The sponsor of today's show is Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense. And I am grateful to the main chapter of Moms Demand Action for all they are doing to protect Maine women and children from gun violence by angry family members. And remember, love should feel good.